today. If you guys want to open up there, we're uh, continuing our study through the book of Psalms, and uh, we're in this one today. Um, let's see. Uh, who here celebrated April 22nd? Nobody? You didn't know? It's a great day of celebration. April 22nd, just this last week. Anyone? Earth Day? <laughs> you guys laugh. I know what kind of people you are. <laughs> hey, I, I, I say that not to, not to, to mock anything or anyone, but um, I bring up April 22nd as, um, and remind everybody that was Earth Day, in light of where we're at in Psalm 24. It's, it's really a good opportunity to talk about it, um, uh, because Earth Day was created um, uh, with people who were environmentally minded. And um, it's turned into a, a movement um, that has really at the root of it, I'll just put it this way from a Christian perspective without, I don't want to be political, um, that's not my goal, but from a Christian perspective, it's turned into this for this most part, a movement of people who are worshiping the creation rather than the creator. And there's good intentions in conservation and um, being good stewards um, from our Christian point of view of what God's entrusted to us. Uh, but I mentioned that to you today because we as believers, uh, we worship the Creator, right? And we enjoy the creation. We care for the creation. And the reason why is, is because what we read of here in this psalm, in the very beginning of this psalm, Psalm 24, it plainly declares, the earth is the Lord's in all its fullness, the world and those who dwell therein. Amen? It says he founded it. David goes on. And... Um, uh, so I want to talk a little bit about stewardship when we get into the study today, but I felt it was a good opportunity to just say that, you know, Christians are the best environmentalists. You know why? Because we understand that God owns it and he's entrusted it to us, and then in one day he's going to give us an account, and he's given it to us to, to enjoy. We're his guests here. That's what we want to talk about it. And so, um, but we do so, we, we are stewards of, 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 of the creation with the mindset that we're honoring the creator. And um, I love that aspect of it. And so even in the things that, that the world may have taken and perverted because the world's corrupt, takes things, good things, and it perverts it, we as Christians get to be a light to, to um, what the truth is and, and what a balance is in that. And anyone who says that Christians don't care about the environment, they're, they're nuts. We just put it in the perspective of, of we don't worship the creation, we worship the creator. And so if you get a chance to talk to anybody last week and this week, go, hey, did you... Did you did you celebrate last, you know, April 22nd last week? And use it as an open door to, to talk about uh, Earth Day, more importantly about, you know, um, God, the creator, and who we worship, and, and why we're good stewards of, of God's creation. So um, anyway, uh, let's read Psalm 24 this morning together, and then we'll, we'll, can, we'll go through verse-by-verse um, -verse study of this psalm. Psalm 24, the Lord... Is, excuse me, the earth is the Lord's in all its fullness, the world and those who dwell therein. And here's the reason why for he founded it upon the seas and he established it upon the waters. Another God, in other words, God created all things. And he created it with intention, he created it with purpose, and we'll examine that also today. And so David who's the author of this psalm, 
goes on um, speaking about God's ownership of the earth as the creator, right? And then he goes on to ask these questions because really what David is doing here for us is he's taking a look at who God is and ultimately reflecting on who he is. And whenever you see men and women of the Bible encounter God or come face to face with God, and we do through the creation, we do. The Bible says that all of creation testifies to the fact that there is a God and all men will be held accountable to that fact in one way, form, or fashion. That we know God, we know there's a God because of creation itself. We look at it, it testifies, it bears witness, undeniable truth. But in whenever we encounter God, whether it's in creation or intimately and personally or at the cross of Jesus Christ, there has to be a look at self. Um, one of the most, one of the most um, notable ones that I really appreciate is in the book of Isaiah, chapter 6, with the prophet Isaiah. He comes and, and he says he sees God, right? And, and, and he sees the, the train of God and, and the holiness of God. And in, in light, and when he sees himself in light of God, he says, woe am I, woe is me, for I am undone. I am a man of unclean Hands, a man of unclean lips who dwell amongst unclean people. And, and what you quickly realize when you stand in front of a holy God is that you're not holy. When you stand in front of an almighty God, you understand your weaknesses, your frailty. And, and this is what David's doing. He's acknowledging God's ownership, him being the creator of all things. And so in light of that, in this place of taking the right position, because if God's the creator, that means we're the creation. And there's, there's a, a proper position for us. And that's the beginning of humility, by the way, understanding your relationship to God. And so he goes on in light of this, and he says, who may ascend into the hill of the Lord, or who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to an idol, nor sworn to sleep flee, he shall receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the salvation or from the God of his salvation. This is Jacob. This may seem out of place, but we'll talk about it. It's, the name here is a reference to something very specific, and it connects dots for us. But in verse 6, David says, This is Jacob, the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face. And then, of course, Selah. Stop, meditate for a minute. Think about this. And so with a, with a, a voice of praise, David goes on in verse 7. He says, Lift up your heads, O you gates, and be lifted up, you everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle, lift up your heads, O you gates, lift up your everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Selah. Father, as we um, join here together this morning, we thank you, God, for all of your provision for us, Lord, for how you provide for this place for us to meet in the heat and air conditioning, Lord, that... That, that brings comfort as we sit and listen. And Lord, all these other things are, are, are above and beyond what we need and 
what we can ever hope for and, and imagine, but Lord, we know that they're gifts from you, and you're the gift giver, and you're the creator, and we're the creation, and Lord, so we come before you in humility this morning, Lord, I'm bowing down to worship you. We thank you for the gift of song and the voices that you've given us to even sing praises to you and to, to worship you through song, Lord, to, to speak our, our, our love and adoration to you congregationally. And so we open up our hearts and minds to you today, oh Lord, I pray you would teach us through your word. Your word is truth. We know that your Holy Spirit is the one who delivers truth. And so, God, we submit ourselves to you. We pray, God, for hope and peace and comfort and encouragement and conviction of sin and, and rebuke and instruction of righteousness, that all these things, Lord, would be working in our hearts and our lives today. And, Lord, that ultimately we would receive what you have for us. And, Lord, that we would not only be hearers, but we would be doers, that our lives would reflect the faith that we have in you as we live day by day uh, as followers of you and, and for you, for your glory. You are the king of glory. You're our king of glory. And you're the king over this world and over this earth. And um, we're grateful, God, that you have a plan for us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So just a little, little backdrop on this psalm. There's several things of significance in relationship to this psalm that, that we want to look at as we go through it. The first is that when you study out Jewish history, Jewish historians connect this psalm back to a time of rejoicing, great rejoicing, a time when David um, had brought the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem, when it finally was entered in, when, it was, when the Ark was brought through the gates of the city of Jerusalem, there to Mount Zion, and uh, eventually the, the tabernacle was constructed there, and then of course we know that the Ark of the Covenant was placed in the Holy of the Most Holies there as, as a representation of the earthly throne room of God. And this event is recorded in both 2 Samuel chapter 6 with the procession and, and, and all the, the, the um, uh, celebration that took place and, and, and the sacrifices that were made as there was great joy and celebration and that was going on. But 2 Samuel chapter 6 and 1 Chronicles chapter 15 verse 1. And so go and read that and see maybe if you can see a connection to what we read here in Psalm 24. But history teaches us that this psalm, um, uh, probably from early on when David appointed um, some of the priests to lead worship in the tabernacle and then continuing on to the temple, and then David had written a lot of these psalms and there were others besides these where, where they were sung in, in, in the temple on certain days and around certain Sabbaths and feasts and that kind of stuff. But traditionally what, what we know is that this psalm was sung on Sundays in, in the tabernacle and later in the temple. And it, that practice of singing the psalm in the, the tabernacle and the temple continued on even into the days when Jesus was upon the earth. And um, when this psalm was sung in the temple, it was sung in a responsive format. It wasn't just all congregationally, um, uh, but there was someone who would lead a certain section and then someone who would respond to it. And so there was a congregational aspect to it that was involved in it, but there was a choir who would lead the congregation and they would sing certain parts and then a soloist, usually, um, sometimes it was the high priest, sometimes it was the uh, chief musician, the actual worship leader of, of the worship that took place there in 
the temple or tabernacle, and he would sing the other part. For example, this is how they believed that this was broken down. Uh, It would be started, the choir would start in uh, the voices and leading the congregation in verses 1 and 2, saying, the earth is the Lord's, right, in all of its fullness, the world and those who dwell in it, for he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. And then in verse 3, the soloist would sing. He would prompt the congregation uh, with this question, right, in, in verse in verse 3, who may ascend then to the Lord of the, to the hill of the Lord and who may stand in his holy place? And the choir, along with the congregation, then their response would be found what we read in verses 4 or 6. And then once that was brought forth, the soloist would then again sing in verse 7 and ask the question that's found at the beginning of verse 8. And then the response by the choir and the congregation would be the Lord, excuse me, the Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. And for a second time, the soloist would say, the chief musician, in verse 9, and he would ask the question um, at the beginning of verse 10, yeah, and then the whole congregation, and uh, with, with at, you know, imagine this, you're there at the tabernacle, um, you're there for a feast, it's Sunday, there's, you know, literally thousands of people gathered together, this, this worship is taking place, it's a joyful declaration of praise, and the congregation would close out this psalm by saying, ultimately, the Lord of hosts, he is the king of glory. He is the king of glory. Now, even this, so, the psalm has a historical connection uh, to when David brought the ark of, uh, back into Jerusalem. It's also seen by the church, by us today, as having prophetic ties to Jesus Christ. Okay? So it had a practical application in the worship in the temple and the tabernacle, but it had a dual purpose in that there's a prophetic connection here for us today. In fact, Charles Spurgeon, speaking about this, he wrote and he said, The eye of the psalmist looked, however... Beyond the typical upgoing of the ark, referring to the time, again, of when David brought it into Jerusalem, he said, beyond the typical upgoing of the ark to the sublime ascension of the king of glory. And we know that Jesus is that king of glory. And, and, and that's how we see Jesus today, as, as first having come as the Lord of glory, Right? who is the only begotten Son of God, and we know that he came, the Bible says, one of the purposes for, for Christ's coming is to reveal to us the glory of God the Father, to reveal God the Father to us. And there are passages of Scripture that declare that, but probably the most uh, profound one is for, found in the very beginning of John's Gospel, where John begins to tell us uh, um, in chapter 1, verse 14, he says, he says and the word... Right, the word was with God, and and um, it says that the word ultimately became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. Speaking of Jesus, the glory as of the only begotten Father, full of grace and truth. But Jesus, we know, is also seen by the church um, uh, as coming back as the Lord of glory. He's already come as the Lord of glory, revealing the glory of God the Father to us, but we also know he's coming back as the Lord of glory because of passages of Scripture that we read in Revelation chapter 19, which declares Jesus' return and says that he comes back in glory, specifically wearing this name, wearing this title, as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. 
And he does so, he comes back, we know. Now keep this in mind as we go through the psalm and we enter into the last part of it in a little bit here. But he comes as the king of kings and then the Lord of lords to establish his kingdom here upon this earth, right? Where he will rule and reign over all, all the nations, all the peoples. And so the fact that Jesus came once and is coming again is believed to be reflected in this psalm. Okay, he has come and he is coming again. And it's first in verse 7. And then in verse 9, where we're told twice to what? Lift up your heads. Lift up your heads and see the King of glory. And so we, we look back to the cross and we see the King of glory as a, as, a, as a symbol and a reminder of who Christ is and what he came to do. But also we look forward with the promises of them put before us of Jesus' return and what he will do at that time. And for this reason, as we look back and we're told to lift up our heads to see the King of glory, most denominational churches who follow a liturgical calendar, 40 days after Easter is the day of ascension. And, and, and in most denominational churches, this psalm, Psalm 24, is read on that day when G, as a reminder of Jesus ascending, lifting up our heads to see the King of glory. And if you remember in the book of Acts, chapter 1, where it accounts Jesus' ascension, it's recorded and it says this. It says, now when he had spoken these things, Jesus, while they watched right? They're on top of the mountain. It says he was taken up. Jesus was taken up. And a cloud received him out of their sight. And the reason why we, we, we read this psalm or remember this psalm on Ascension Day is because of what was promised at that time. And it goes on and says, and it says, while they look steadfastly towards heaven, right? You can see the disciples. We know these guys a little bit from what we read. You know, I kind of just picture them all like, you're leaving? You know, their mouths are open. He's leaving. Peter's all, he's really leaving. And, the, and he's ascending. It's this wonderful, glorious thing. Jesus told them that's what would happen. And it says, as they look steadfastly towards heaven, probably with their mouths wide open, it says, he went up. And it says, behold, two men, we know them to be angels, then appeared and stood by them in white apparel, who also said. And I wonder, I wonder how long they would have stood there with their eyes in heaven. Who's ever watched like a helium balloon rising up until like disappears, you know? And then you're just like, where's it gone? Do you still see it? And, the, and I bet if these men hadn't appeared to them, these angels hadn't appeared to them, that they would have stood there probably for days. But they, the, the, the men who appeared to them, these angels said this, men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? And part of the reason we know this is because Jesus had told them just before then he'd given them the commission, Right? The Great Commission. Go to all the ends of the earth. Judea, Samaria, to all the ends of the earth. Making disciples for me. Teaching them all things that I have taught you. Go. And there they were. Paralyzed, if you will, by um, what they saw going on. And these angels are, why are, you, why are you standing here gazing up in heaven? He said, this, this same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will also come in a like manner as you saw him going into heaven. Looking up, we will look up and we will see the king of glory return. And for us who believe and put our faith in Jesus Christ, we know that we that Jesus is coming and at the sound of a trumpet and the twinkling of an eye, we will be caught up together into the clouds to be with him, to be with him, the king of glory. So because Jesus is going to return to the earth in the same manner that he has ascended into heaven, there is coming a day not just when we as believers 
looking for our redemption in, in, in the return of Jesus and the rapture of the church, but there is coming a day when all the people of the earth will lift up their heads together and with their eyes they will witness the King of Glory's return. And so with that, David begins the psalm again, verse 1, the earth is the Lord's in all its fullness. The world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. And in these first two verses of this psalm, which is written with a focus, the overall focus is on the king of glory, right? The king of glory. We've got to keep that in our mind. With the overall focus of that, we see in these first two verses being revealed or made known to us by David is the omnipotence of God. The, 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 the limitless power that God has. The power of this king of glory. First through the testimony of his ownership. David's saying, look around. He's made it all. Everything on it, everything in it, it's his. It's his. And this declaration, which is a powerful statement of God's ownership, is made in conjunction or in union with what we read in verse 2, which tells us that the earth and that all that is in it is the Lord's because simply because he's the one that's created it and also because he's the one that's provided it. We say he's the creator and the sustainer of all things. There's no life apart from him. The creator and the sustainer of all things. He created it, he provided for it. And, and, and when we stop to think about the earth just for a minute in relationship to what David's talking about and how we know it to be, all that is in it in relationship to, to, to the whole of creation, all that we look down upon, all that we look up to, when we think about the earth and all of God's creation in relationship, to, I think it's only right to conclude Guys, that there's something special going on here. Out of all that we can see, there's something special going on here. Think about it. Of all the other planets, all the other stars, all the other solar systems, and the now estimated two trillion galaxies that have all been created by the Lord, the Earth, this little ball of dirt, in comparison to everything that God has made, the earth is the place that God has chosen to do his ongoing work. Clarence Benson, he's the founder of the Evangelical Training Institute and director of the Christian educational courses at the Moody Bible Institute. He wrote a book called Earth, the Theater of the Universe. It's the stage of which, which God operates on. He wrote a book, again, the theater of the universe, and in it he describes how God has demonstrated his love in the greatest drama ever staged by choosing a planet, a people, a land, and then sending his son to minister, to die, and to be raised from the dead so that lost sinners like us might be saved. Sending to us the king of glory. Something special about this place. Something special because God's doing something special here. And the point is that the earth is God's. He made it, right? He keeps it full. And everything on it and everything that is in it is his. 
And in regards to all that is on the earth and all that is in the earth, we know even something greater. We know this, that every person on the earth has also been created in God's image. Out of all of creation, he's made us different, special, created in his image. As a matter of fact, the Bible says that when God formed man from the dust of the earth, created him in his image, that he breathed into his nostrils the very breath of life, the Spirit of God. And so whether we like it or not, God's ownership of the earth and all that is in it ultimately means this, that we're accountable to him. If it's his, if we're his, he's created us, we're the creation, we're ultimately accountable to him. In Exodus chapter 19, God conveys this truth to the Hebrew people just three months after delivering them from their Egyptian bondage. And as God was meeting with Moses there on Mount Sinai, preparing to give people his law, to have them enter into this covenant with him, he said to them in verses 5 and 6, he says, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people. He says this. Here's the reason why. He says, for all the earth is mine. This is what God said. It's mine. And you shall be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. The point is, is that God is the all-powerful creator. But in his goodness, he has shared his creation with us. In his goodness, he has shared his creation with us. He, as, he is, as Genesis 4.19 says, the possessor of, of heaven and of earth. And we, in relationship to what we're reading here, should see first off that we are his guests on this planet. He's prepared it for us. We're his guests. However, in Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, it also says this. It says, Then the Lord God took the man, having formed him and created him and breathed life into him. God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden and said this to him, Tend it and keep it. You are my guest, he said, but you still get to do the dishes. <laughs> Tend it. And keep it. In other words, God entrusted the earth to us. This wonderful part of his creation to us so that we as stewards might enjoy what he's created for us. Now as we consider the creation in relationship to the coming of the king of glory, right? This is what we're looking at. This is the lens, the focus, what we look through it. As we consider the creation in relationship to the coming of of the King of Glory, we have to keep in mind this, that at this moment in time, and it has been for a long time now, but the world that we are living in is not the way that God had originally created it to be, right? When he first handed it over to Adam and he said, tend it and keep it. And we know what Adam did is he blew it. He dropped the ball. And so have all of us down through time with our sin. Remember in Genesis, we're taught that when Adam disobeyed God and sin really saying, God, I think there's a better way. I don't need you. What he did is he, he ate from that forbidden tree, right? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And in that moment, in that time, death entered in, the Bible says. For God said, on that day when you disobey, when you rebel, surely death will enter in. 
And because Adam had sin, all of creation was, if you look at it like this, it was infected with a corruption. And, and all of creation came under the bondage of sin. And ever since then, all of creation has been adversely affected. All of what God has made for us. Consequently, all of creation on the other side of this coin is, is in need of. All of creation is waiting for a deliverance. As a matter of fact, the Bible says expectantly. Waiting for that day of redemption. The day when the King of glory who will be coming to claim an inheritance, will restore everything back to the way that it should have been. The way that God had intended it. And we're told about this, we read about this in Romans chapter 8, verses 19 through 22, right? Paul writes and he says, the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly awaits the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope, meaning that God had a plan from the very beginning. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole of creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now waiting for that day of redemption, waiting for the return of the king of glory. We're the guests, but we're stewards. And so in verse 3, David's speaking about who God is and what God has done, sustaining it, creating it. He goes on in verse 3 then to look at man, and he goes, well, who, who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? Or who may stand in his holy presence? He who has a clean hand. So he answers the questions. He knows the answer because he knows who God is. We know who God is. We know God's standard. He says, He who has clean hands and pure heart, he who has not lifted up his soul to an idol, nor sworn deceitfully, he says, He, this man, this person, he shall receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. He says, This is Jacob. And in one sense, David's saying, This is us. We have a covenant. We have a promise. This is us. But there's something specific that's being referred to in this, this, this name in Jacob that, that shows us what this means to us. He says, the generation of those who seek him. The generation of those who seek your face, Selah. So, we're God's guests. And we're his stewards under his authority. With stewardship comes accountability. There's his authority, and, 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 and we get to enjoy the goodness of God's creation as we eagerly await with the rest of creation for the Lord's return, for his redemption, for his restoration. And as David continues on in these next verses, he points out this. So we're guests, we're stewards, but you know what else we are? Ultimately what he's talking about here, he's saying that, that we are worshipers. And when you think about Isaiah and seeing the holiness of God, God enthroned and seeing himself, not only to say woe, to who he was in the state that he's in, but he worshiped God because we know that the angel came and, and he, he picked up the, 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 the coal from the fire and he, and he purified the lips of Isaiah in a symbolic way. And there's a response to what we understand, to what's been made known to us, and it's this worship. We enter into worship. We, we are worshipers because we've experienced or we do experience or we are experiencing God's grace through 
our redemption. God's grace through our redemption. And the, these, these, these first two questions in verse 3, think about it here. They're really asking, what must a person be and what must a person do in order to be found worthy of entering into the presence of God? Those are good questions. If you know there's a God who's the creator and that we're the creation and that we have an accountability and a responsibility to him, then what must we do to enter into his presence? Is there a way? Is it possible that a created thing could stand in the presence of the creator? To be found worthy to enter into the presence of God, to have the right to come before God in, in his holy hill. And we know in the context of the psalm that the holy hill is Mount Zion, the place where the tabernacle was at, the holy place which speaks of the very throne of God, the throne room of God here on this earth in the holy of holies, behind that veil of separation where God would man himself, manifest himself to his people, that one place, uh, the, the place where only once a year the high priest was only allowed to enter in and only after blood was spilt and it was brought in to be sprinkled upon the altar as in a sacrifice for the sins of the people, to be purified, to be found, to be holy in the presence of God. And then the answer is a given in verses 4 and 5 with this question being asked, but David, but David who declared these truths, what we know about David, and we look at his life, we even talked about it last week, you know, he couldn't claim to be qualified. He speaks these things, but, but he knows he couldn't be claimed, he didn't claim to be qualified in regards to any of these standards that are found here on his own merit, okay? He's not speaking of his own righteousness, and neither can we. We cannot read through this and go, yeah, got it down, no problem, and the truth is, when we read it, we probably feel just the opposite of that. And in verse 4, when it speaks about, having, about needing to have clean hands, this is what it's speaking about. It's about having a righteous conduct. Right? A righteous conduct. It's about behaving the right way, God's way. And when David writes about, he goes on about this need to have a pure heart, he's talking about a godly character, or, or, or more specifically, a godly motive. It's not just about doing the right thing. It's about the reason for why we do it. Because lots of times people will do the right thing, but their motive can be wrong. And the Lord's concerned about the heart, not just our behavior. He's concerned about our heart. And when the heart's right, then the behavior will follow. In other words, it, it, these two things is really having the ability to have clean hands and a pure heart. It's the ability to discern God's right way from the wrong and to voluntarily surrender our will to do what is right in God's sight. And no man can do that. We know that God's given us the Holy Spirit to empower us to do that through His Son. But, but it's someone who is pure in heart. So really, if you sum it up, what David's saying is someone who is pure in heart is someone who's consistently doing the right thing at the right time in the right way for the right reason with the right intentions. If you're taking notes, it's doing the right thing at the right time in the right way for the right reasons with the right intention. And if by chance there's someone here who thinks that they've got all these things covered, David goes on and, and to say that if a person desires to stand in the presence of God, they must also have not lifted up their soul to an idol, right? And this means to have given your worship, your affection, your devotion to an idol. 
And what we know is an idol is something more than just a figurine that we place on a shelf uh, that we may bow down, bow down to, this, these false gods. Um, it's putting anything in the place of God, and, and, and more times than not, guys, it's ourself. We put ourselves in the place of God as we worship at the altar of self. And lastly, when David writes at the end of this, at the end of verse 4, and says, he says, nor is it the person who is sworn deceitfully. And we can understand this to mean someone who's told a lie, which we've all done, perpetrated a deception, which we've all done. But more importantly, what it means to have not sworn deceitfully, um, it means to make a vow or a promise and, and then not keep it. If you've sworn deceitfully, you've made a vow or a promise and you've not kept it. And in regards to our speech, because this is ultimately what it's talking about, right? With our tongue, we make a vow. With our tongue, we tell lies. With, with our tongues, we perpetrate deceptions. But, but it's speaking about our speech, our tongue. And, and, and um, what we see is that what we say is just as important as what we do. Or what we do is just as important as what we say. And the reason why is because Jesus in Matthew chapter 12, verse 34, he clearly said that. He said, he said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And if our speed is deceitful, it's because our heart is deceitful and God's concerned about the heart. This is the idea. And so deceitful speech ultimately reveals this deceitful heart. But for the person or the persons who are able to do all these things, David says their reward is the blessing of entering into the presence of God, the creator of all things. But these answers of David, if we read them and don't continue on, guys, it may cause us to despair. If we go, is this it? Is this what it's about? Then there's no hope for me. Because it's easy to look at this list and see that, that for any of us that our hands are not always clean, our heart is not always pure. Idolatry can be really subtle and it can be something that we hang on to stubbornly in our heart. I want this, I want that, I gotta have it my way. And you know what, it's true in the world that we can live in through, through compromise and justification, it can be very, very easy to make promises and, and have some kind of little tinge of deceit in it because, because we, we look to benefit from it. And the fact of the matter is that there is and there has never been anyone on God's earth who has ever been able to meet these standards. So why would David write them? Because why would David list them? Why would David say this? But it's because he goes on to clarify these things. And we know that the only person who's ever met these standards is Jesus, who is the what? The King of glory. The King of glory. In Romans chapter 3, verse 23, it tells us, right? All have sinned and all fallen short of the glory of God. So in light of this, we must conclude that the only way that we can enter into the presence of God is through the merits of the King of glory, through the merits of Jesus Christ and not on our own merits. And now this is what we know to be the new covenant of God's grace, right? That God has, that God has established for us and we enter into this new covenant and, and to enter into this new covenant, what we know is we have to repent of our sins. We have to, like Isaiah, confess who we are. We are a created thing and we live in this fallen state because we have a heart that is deceitful. We're sinners, it's that simple. But in doing so, in repenting, we put our faith in Jesus. We put our trust in Jesus, the King of glory. We put our hope in Jesus, the King of glory. We lift our eyes to him. 
He who died on the cross for the payment of our sins. He who rose again for us to have new life. He who ascended into heaven, securing for us our own hope of life after death. And this is how and when we receive the blessing from the Lord, because as verse 5 points out, then the righteousness from God, the God of our salvation, is freely given to us. This is exactly what the Apostle Paul is writing about when he wrote to the church in Corinth and said in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, and this, when you think about it, it's a mind-blowing thing. And I love that passage of Scripture because some translation, Apostle Paul just says, man, I just got to stop because this is blowing my mind. He says this, it says, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. You can't wrap your mind around that. He who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him? And the bottom line is that only Jesus is qualified to enter into the Father's presence. Him alone. On His merits. And this is exactly what He did when? When He ascended, when he ascended into heaven. There on that mountaintop. But in doing so, what we know is that he's gone for us, right? He's gone to represent those of us who have put our faith in him and to make intercession for us before his father's throne. And we lift our eyes to him. And this whole topic is discussed in great detail in Hebrews chapter 10. It tells of a better way, this new covenant and Jesus Christ being our high priest. But the thing that we must understand is that God's righteousness is a gift. It's not a reward for good works. It's clearly a gift that is made possible to us through the work that Jesus did on the cross. And it's verse 6 that connects all of these things together for us. It connects these truths to what we read in verses 4 and 5 because in this verse, David compared the generation of those who seek the face of God to Jacob. To Jacob. Well, what do we know about Jacob? This is a really interesting thing that David chooses Jacob by name here in this passage. Why not Abraham, where the covenant was first established? How, why not Moses, where it was was. was was really solidified with the giving of the law there on the mountaintop of Mount Sinai before God was bringing his people into the promised land. Why not Moses? Why Jacob? And I think it's specifically Jacob because the interesting thing we know about Jacob is, is, is that he, he later became known as Israel, right? But what we know about him and about his name Jacob as David uses it is in this sense, why didn't he not even say Israel? Why did he say Jacob? Because when you think about Jacob, when you read about Jacob, the thing that you should pop in your mind is, is this dude was a deceiver. And he says, it's through the deceiver that we accomplish these things. No. 
But there's something unique about Jacob that we read about. This man who was a deceiver, whose name was changed into, to, to, was, name was then given to Israel. What kind of person was he? What he, did he do? And, and even though he was by no means a perfect man, what we know is that God saved him. In spite of his deception, in spite of his imperfection, God saved him, right? And, and in doing so, God even declares that he is the God of Jacob. God says this, I'm the God of Jacob. He says that in, 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 um, in the book of Genesis, but also in passages of Scripture like uh, Psalm 46, verse 7. And so why? Why does God say, I'm Jacob's God? And this is because of two things. The first one is because God chose Jacob. That's where you got to start. And that's enough. God chose Jacob. Before Jacob even proved himself to be righteous or a deceiver, God said, God knowing who he was and what he would be, chose him. God says, I choose you. Matter of fact, God said, Jacob I have chosen, Esau I have hated. Well, they were both knuckleheads. You know, and likewise for us. The Bible tells us that God's chosen us, God chose you before the foundations of the earth while you were still in your mother's womb. God chose you. And what does that mean? Before you had the opportunity to do something good, to glean God's eye, before you had the opportunity to do something bad and wreck it all, before you even had an effect on any of it, God said, I'm choosing you. God chose him. And that's the thing that we realize about Jacob, that we connect in our own lives to this righteousness of God that we don't deserve. God said, I choose you. Why? Because I'm God. I'm your God. But here's the other reason why. And, and simply put, it's because Jacob chose God. God chose Jacob, but Jacob chose God. And that's what we read of in Genesis chapter 32. It tells us of this encounter when God had grabbed, when, when Jacob encountered God, he grabbed a hold of him. It was a time when Jacob was fleeing from his life. He had pulled off the ultimate deception. He, he, he deceived his brother out of his birthright for a bowl of beans. Not even a piece of meat. Beans. And his brother was ticked. He was a carnal man. He was of this earth. He, he was accountable to what he had done also, but he was going to kill his brother, and Jacob fled. His mother packed him up a sandwich and said, go, your brother's going to kill you. And so he fled. He fled to Laban's, and we know the whole story there and what God did there. But along the way, in that moment, when, da when Jacob was lost and afraid and had messed it up and had pulled off this ultimate deception, God came and was wrestling with him. Jacob thought it was Esau. He thought his life was over. But what we know in that instance is that Jacob grabbed a hold of God and literally held on to him by faith. And it says that he would not let go of God until God did what? Blessed him. And so in verse 7 we read, it says, Lift up your heads, O you gates, and be lifted up you everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O you gates. Lift up your everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. So, we're guests. 
We're stewards. We're worshipers. And by holding on to God, by holding on to God by faith, no matter what you're going through, no matter what's going on, holding on to Him by faith is what it all really boils down to because it's through our faith that we experience the blessing of God. It's through our faith that we ultimately experience the grace of God and the redemption of God. And in these last three verses that we just read, we see that one of the major blessings of God's redemption that comes to us through the King of glory to whom we lift our eyes up to, to the one we hold on to, to whom our face turns to, is the fact that he is, is that one of the major blessings is, is that comes to us is this victory in the battle, a victory in the battle. Because our Lord who is for us is strong and mighty, David says. He is mighty in battle. He says he is the Lord of hosts, literally the Lord of mighty, a mighty angelic army. And so in these final verses, what David is doing in conclusion, he's, he's painting this very clear picture for us of, of a mighty conqueror. Picture it in your mind. And maybe even think of the day when Jesus came into Jerusalem, there on the back of the donkey, people lining up alongside the road, putting down the, psalm, the palms, going... Going, Hosanna, Hosanna. Hosanna in the highest who comes in the name of the Lord. Declaring him to be the king. Laying down their clothes. Picture that, or picture the sign, the, 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 the scene of a mighty conqueror coming back to the city to receive this, this victory parade after a victory, victorious battle in order to receive all the praise, all the worship, all the adoration, all the devotion of his people. That's what we see here. And when we consider this in light of Jesus' first coming, we know that through his death, on the cross and his resurrection from the grave that Jesus won the battle for us against Satan, for us against our own sin and against death that we were in bondage to. He won the battle. He's victorious in battle. We turn our face to him. We receive the blessing of the victory. And this means for those of us who have been chosen, those of us who choose to hold on to the king of glory that we no, live or, we no longer live in bondage to sin. And ultimately it means that the eternal death that we, have, that we were imprisoned to as a result of our sin no longer has power over us. Then if you and the worship team want to come up, we're going to end with this. But the battle, guys, this battle that, that, that has gone on over sin and death that Jesus fought and that he, that he has won when he was on the cross and he said, it is finished, Paid in full. This battle that he won is not the last battle that he's going to fight. That's what Scripture tells us. We look forward to the coming of the King of glory who's victorious in battle, who's mighty. And we know that Jesus, when he comes back, he's not coming back as the Lamb like he once came. He is the Lion and the Lamb. And he's coming back as a mighty lion, as a mighty lion. And when Jesus returns to this earth, he is going to fight a battle. It's not going to be this, this very dramatic thing. It's, it's just Jesus is going to take care of business. 
And he's going to fight a battle against Satan and the Antichrist and the collective armies of this world, this world system, the modern Babylon, those who have chosen to follow after that system, the world and the people, and we know that Jesus will be victorious on that day. And in doing so, Jesus, Scripture tells us, think about this, Jesus will bind up Satan. He'll send an angel to do so. He doesn't even something to do it himself. Satan's it's like, go take care of my light work. He's going to bind Satan. And it says he's going to throw him in the, in the bottomless pit, waiting for the day of judgment where he'll eventually be cast into the lake of fire. And he will deliver Jerusalem at that point, it says, from all of her enemies and establish his kingdom on, his earth, on the earth. But more importantly, in doing so at that time, his people, the Hebrew people, as a nation, the children of God, will finally receive Jesus as the, as, as the Lord of hosts, the King, the Conqueror, the one who is a mighty army, their King of glory. And it tells us in the book of Revelation that the Lord shall be King over all the earth. He shall be King over all the earth. Why? Because He made it. He created it. All that is on it, He founded it. He sustained it. He died for it. And today we get the opportunity of reflecting on this and worshiping him as the king of glory, as the Lord of lords. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time.